invite you to open your Bible to Psalm 49, Psalm 49, not one of the better known psalms, and yet full of uh, wisdom. It's a wisdom psalm, reads a little bit like Ecclesiastes, and yet a psalm uh, written uh, for, the, for our comfort, for our, our edification, and for our uh, wisdom as we live in this life. Psalm 49. Let's give our attention to God's Word. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor, together. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches? Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, that he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die, The foolish and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence, yet after them people approve of their boasts. Like sheep they are appointed for shield. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house, is, of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed, and though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers, who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. God in heaven, we now come and we ask again for your Holy Spirit to teach us your truth. Thank you for the word of God. Thank you that it brings clarity and wisdom. Oh Lord, may it also bring life by the power of the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of my message uh, this evening is uh, Remember Death, taken from a a wonderful little book that I've recently uh, begun to read and continue to read by Matthew McAuliffe uh, by that title, Remember Death. And um, the Psalm 49 is just a wonderful calling to do exactly that. I don't know for sure why, but uh, the old uh, blue Psalter hymnal, its version of Psalm 49 struck me as a child, and I've never forgotten, a dust to dust the mortal dies, both the foolish and the wise. None forever can remain, each must leave his hoarded gain. But within their hearts, they say, that, that their houses are for aid, that their dwelling place is grand, shall for generations stand. I think it just struck me as profound. 
uh, both the foolish and the wise must return to dust. Uh, death is the unavoidable reality of life. Uh, scholars say that over 150,000 people die every day. That means at this point in this day, 110,000 have already perished. That comes about 6,300 an hour, 105 a minute, about two a second. Most of them are not prepared. Many of them had no idea that this morning when they woke up, it would be the last morning here on earth. All of them left everything that they have. All their relationships, all their plans, all their possessions, they left it all behind and they entered into eternity. I said Matthew McAuliffe uh, in, his, in his book, um, he notes that every death is a reminder of the reality of our death. He invites us to imagine the following scene, quote, he says, uh, imagine you're one of a line of prisoners condemned to die by firing squad one at a time. You hear the captain's call, ready, aim, fire. You hear the sound of the shots. You hear a body fall to the ground. Then you hear it all over again, only this time a little closer, and one by one the others before you in line are killed, and you know in every one of their deaths your own is foreshadowed. Each death implies your own. You might think that's morbid, but it is exactly true. Uh, the reality of people dying all around us is meant to remind us that we too must die. Our text tonight calls us to remember death, and, and it does so in a culture that does everything in its power to avoid the topic, in a culture that worships youth and strength and health. Serious conversations about death and dying seem out of place and inconvenient. For most people, death is something unfortunate that happens to other people, particularly older people. And usually it happens in secret, hidden away in hospitals, in nursing homes, in hospice care centers. It does touch our life from time to time, but, but it's to someone else and has little practical relevance for how we go about our day, how we think about uh, our life. How many people do you know who uh, actually allow the reality of their own mortality to, in, a, in an obvious way, affect the way they spend their money and their time and their gifts? How often do you actually think about the unavoidable reality of your mortality? That you will die as surely as you are alive. McAuliffe notes in his book, interestingly, he says that this, this uh, avoidance of the topic of death is sort of a new um, modern wrinkle in human history. That for, for most of the history of the world, death was an up-close, inescapable presence. He gives the example of um, new, the New England pastor, Puritan pastor Cotton Mather, uh, lived 1663 to 1728, so about 300 years ago. Mather was the father of 14 children. Seven of his children died as infants soon after they were born. Another child died at two years old. Of the six children who survived to adulthood, five of them died in their 20s. Only one outlived his father. Mather enjoyed all the medical advantages available at that time, and he could afford to take advantage of them, but... He buried, he buried 13 of his children. Uh, John Owen, another Puritan pastor, had 11 children. Only one survived um, to adulthood. Young mothers routinely died in childbirth. 
Disease and accidents took the lives of people in their prime. And those deaths happened at home, in the living room, in the bedroom. Uh, There was simply no way to avoid the brutal reality and the utter certainty of death. Not that they tried to avoid it. Uh, One of the things that McCullough points out is that our spiritual forefathers uh, believed that wisdom for life required facing the reality of death. And, and that started at a young age. So uh, the New England Primer, as you might uh, know, was used to teach the children uh, the basic lessons of, uh, of their letters and, and, and uh, grammar and things like that. And, and they, to teach the alphabet, they would have the letter and then a little rhyme. So A, uh, in Adam's fall we send all. And that's how they learned the alphabet. Well, um, they didn't shy away from the doctrine of death even in teaching the alphabet. So the letter T, the rhyme that goes with T, is time cuts down all, both great and small. The letter X, the rhyme is Xerxes the great did die, and so must you and I. Try to get that past your local school board. So at school, at home, at church... One historian says that the message to prepare to die came from so many sides that it was inescapable. Well, how different, how profoundly different is it today? We've, we've managed to push death to the margins of our daily life and, and in that process have become increasingly unprepared to either live or die. McCullough's point in his, in his little book is that the Bible Uh, teaches that an essential part of wisdom is facing mortality. So Moses writes in Psalm 90, verse 12, teach us to number our days. Why? So that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Wisdom comes from numbering your days. And in that same vein of wisdom, then we have Psalm 49. It's a wisdom psalm. The writer specifically says in verse 3, My mouth shall speak wisdom, and the meditation of my heart shall be understanding. And wisdom and understanding is biblical language for uh, understanding how the world really is as it exists under the hand of God of God as the creator and sustainer, provider and judge. The wisdom is learning how to live in light of the way things actually are. And this psalm then, you see, if you'll notice, it was not written um, for God's people. It's written for everyone. Because all are made in the image of God. All have God as a creator. All have sinned against him and all are, um, are going to one day appear before him. So hear this, all peoples give ear all inhabitants of the world. It's a message here for everyone. The psalm is uh, divided into five strophes, five stanzas. Uh, there's an introductory uh, stanza, and then uh, you, two, three, and four deal specifically with the topic of death, and, and then five summarizes uh, the lesson. Uh, but there are two main themes that run through the, uh, through the psalm, and I'm going to use those themes as my basic outline tonight as we move forward. I think it's a little easier uh, to follow and understand. The, 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 the two basic themes as it talks about death is one, the fundamental human solidarity in death, and then secondly, the f- a fundamental separation at death. 
And those would be the, the, the two main points. A fundamental human solidarity in death, and then secondly, a fundamental separation at death. Everyone must die, but the experience of those uh, as we die are going to be profoundly different. There's going to be a separation. Let's start by just looking at the fundamental solidarity. The writer begins, interestingly, with a question. Verse 5. Why should I fear in times of trouble? When the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches. Uh, The writer addresses a reality that people have known ever since the days of Cain and Abel, and that is that it appears that the world is divided between weak and strong, poor and rich, the oppressors and the oppressed. God does not distribute his gifts evenly, and equally among men, some are physically stronger, some are more gifted, some are just wealthier, uh, some are born into positions that allow them access to influence and power. And those who are more gifted and brighter, more beautiful, um, act, who have access to positions of influence, being sinners, often use those gifts of God in wicked ways and actually do oppress and, and, and commit acts of injustice. That is, a, that is a truth of life in this world ever since the fall. Well, the, the writer then asks that, that the question, what do, we, what do we do with that? Uh, why should I fear when that's happening to me? So he's writing as the oppressed person, the person who's poor, who's weak, who doesn't have uh, access to the power or the wealth. Well, the, the world would be happy to answer this question for you. Uh, you see, the world is talking about this unequal distribution all the time, and particularly in our day. Uh, people are talking about, um, about poor and weak and, and um, oppressors and oppressed, and wealthy and those who don't have wealth. Uh, there's a, the world has, I just read a, a while back, a couple weeks ago, I suppose, I read this fascinating article by Neil Shenvey on critical theory, which uh, you don't need to know what that is, except that it's, it really is what is uh, saturating our um, um, universities, saturating the, the way that people talk in, in media. It's becoming more and more part of our popular culture. And it, one, of the, one of the premises of, of critical theory simply is that uh, the world is, uh, humanity is fundamentally divided. So you have the, the weak, poor, low, rich, haves, haves, nots, oppressors, oppressed. That is fundamentally the way things are. And then the way that we're to respond to that is by social action or revolution. Because the, the weak need to get, gather together and overthrow the, the, the strong and, and, and then enforce the equal distribution of resources. So the revolution, social action is the response to the problem of these two fundamental groups, and then the result is utopia of some sort or other, the world the way it ought to be. Um, Well, I just want you to notice that's not where the psalmist goes. There's nothing like that in the psalm. The psalmist acknowledges the problem There are rich and poor, and there are oppressors and oppressed. It's just, it's plainly evident in the psalm. What do I do when people are cheating me? These wealthy people who trust in their wealth, and they boast in the abundance of their riches. So he recognizes the reality of oppression and and, uh, and, and the injustice that's taking place. 
But he does not advocate for social revolution, but sober reflection. His, you see, his, his, his answer, the, the direction he goes is that while there seems to be this great difference between men, it's just superficial. Underneath, down where reality lies, everyone shares a fundamental, irreversible solidarity. The biblical worldview is that there is, at the basis of humanity, solidarity. Everyone made in the image of God. Everyone equally then valuable and accountable to God. And then there is solidarity in the fall. Everyone fell in Adam's sin, not just a few. And we all fell the same distance in Adam's sin. Fundamental human solidarity. As image bearers who've rebelled against God and therefore share the same sentence of death. That's where the psalmist goes. And, and there's a solidarity then in, in helplessness before God. So he talks in uh, verses 7 through 9 of solidarity in futility. Truly no man can ransom, ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly. It can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. Notice he's talking about all peoples, all men, as though they all live before God, because they do. They all do. And they've all, every man, woman, child, has forfeited their life because of sin. And all men are powerless to rectify that circumstance, that situation. No man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. <coughs> no matter how powerful they might be, they are destined to die like everyone else, and there's nothing they can do about it. All, all the power in the world is not going to buy them a minute more of life. It's said that when Queen Elizabeth I was on her deathbed, she grabbed her physician by the sleeve, pulled him down to her bed, and said, half the British Empire for six months of life. Well, her doctor could not give her six minutes, and she died. God has determined that we will die, and he's determined the day that we will die, and no amount of wealth or power or medical intervention is going to prevent it. A people with access to the best medical care in the world are not an iota less mortal. Read one physician in the book, um, just talks about how people are, 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 have such great confidence in medicine. Surely there's something we can do. And of course, there's always something you can do. You just can't prevent death. And so this physician says, people do not die because of a failure in medicine. They die because they're human. It's what humans do. We die. Now, how does that solve the problem of wealthy, powerful oppressors? Well, it does several things. On the one hand, it shows that power and wealth are illusions. Uh, power and wealth is, is, is fantasy, you see, in the face of mortality. Every man uh, of position and power is just as hopeless and helpless before death as the most vulnerable widow and small child. 
And so this truth fundamentally, you see, levels the playing field. Everyone is powerless to avoid death, and we all must die. Whatever wealth that, 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 that a man will have at the moment is for the moment. He's going to lose it all. There's a solidarity, verses 10, in mortality. For he sees that even the wise die. The fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Dust to dust, the mortal dies. Hebrews 9, verse 7, it's been appointed unto every man once to die and then to face judgment. Every man appointed by God. And we will keep that appointment. And so you see, death makes the boasting man and the cheating man look like an unbelievable fool. Have you, have you ever had the experience of having something stolen from you or being cheated out of something? I've had that several times. And, and, and my response uh, is increasingly, there's the initial sense of um, how could you know, someone do that to me? But it, it's increasingly, what, what a, the, poor, the poor guy... So he, so, he, so he managed to cheat me out of a couple hundred bucks. What, what do you get for a couple hundred bucks? What do you get in eternity for a couple hundred dollars? For a couple thousand dollars? What do you really benefit from that? You see, it, it makes the cheat a fool. Because he has to take that theft with him before the throne of God. It, 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 you see how death just sort of changes the way we look at it? If, if you don't think of death, if you don't remember death, you're just going to remember the betrayal. You're going to remember the loss. And it's going to seem like a big deal to you. He cheated me out of $1,000. He, he, he stole from me whatever it might be. But if you remember death, and you remember that the fool and the stupid alike must perish, leave their wealth to others, well, it, it just sort of changes the priorities and the levels of importance. You see, the, the, the cheat, his life is fleeting, and, he, and he, thinks, he thinks that he can somehow help himself or save himself or benefit himself by cheating and stealing. But verse 11, their graves are their homes forever. Their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names. And so, and so no matter how much he has and, and he, the, the honor that he accrued, at the end, all he has is his grave, just like everybody else. You see, the reason we don't need to fret when people cheat is, is, is not only that they will die and, and they'll leave it all behind, but the, it, it's also good for us to remember that we will die and leave it all behind. In eternity, what have you really lost if you've lost $1,000? You, you haven't lost anything. You see, the biblical answer to the unequal distribution of wealth and power is not social activism, but sober reflection. It doesn't, the Bible does not give us a vision for how to fix this world. It reminds us that we will soon leave this world. We're here for a very short time. And so being cheated doesn't matter so much when death is drawing near. And you, you, know, you can insist on justice. You can insist on gaining your rights. But what will any of that do for you when you die? So you got your rights. Good. Good. 
Now you're going to die. How did getting your rights avail you in any way to meet God? Do you understand? I wonder if you ever heard of someone going into hospice and, and maybe uh, or they just got the report back from the doctor. They have cancer. They have six months to live. And have you ever thought to yourself, I wonder what that must be like to, to face death that way, to, to know that you're going to die. But, but you see, we don't have to wonder. We're, we're all in hospice. Uh, we just have more roaming privileges. We're all in hospice, right? Young and old, rich and poor. We're all going to die. Death is facing us whether or not we will face it. And it's wisdom to remember. One of the reasons we have such a hypersensitive and angry society is because we have a grievance society that has forgotten about eternal things. We've forgotten about death. Well, there's this human solidarity then in death and the complete inability of us to change it. Every person you meet is dying. Every person you know is rushing toward eternity. The only question that remains then is, what will their experience be like when they get there? That's what the Bible wants to bring in front of us. What will the experience be like? Because there we find a fundamental separation. On the one hand, you have the fate of the foolish. Verse uh, four, I mean the fourth strophe begins with these words, this is the path of those who have foolish confidence. There is a path that's been worn down by those who foolishly walk through life refusing or failing to consider their death. And in life, these foolish people boasted about their wealth. They, other people admired and applauded and boasted, uh, uh, approved of their boast. And then they died. All of them, the boasters and the applauders. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol, the place of the dead. Death shall be their shepherd. That has to be one of the most frightening statements in the Bible. Death shall be their shepherd. It's personified. Death will take you by the hand and, and herd you into the grave. And there um, it will feed on you. Verse 14, their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. Sheol is the place of utter loss, complete darkness and decay. And so whatever glory people have in this life, whatever wealth they've accrued, they lose it all at death. No matter how gifted, how athletic, how bright, how beautiful, uh, it, it all gets left behind. Jeff Bezos is worth $112 billion. He can buy anything he wants. In a few short years, he is going to leave every penny behind him as he enters into eternity. Verse 17, for when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed, and you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers who will never again see light. Can you imagine the horror of that? Never again to see light. Never again to see life. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beast that perish. And what is true for Jeff Bezos is true for you and for me. 
McAuliffe says, even if your life plays out precisely the way that you imagine for yourself in your wildest dreams, death will steal away everything you have and destroy everything you accomplish. That's your good word for the day. Death will steal away everything you have and destroy everything you accomplish. That's wisdom. That's wisdom. And the Bible calls us to wake up. To realize this is just true. You see, the great tragedy is not when the man is cheating you. That's not the great tragedy. It's wrong. It's sin. He'll answer to God for it. That's not the tragedy. The tragedy is if you would follow in the path of the fool. And you'd be upset because that man just got in the way of you trying to live your best life now. And you were just as blind to eternal things as he was. That would be the, that would be the unspeakable tragedy. That, that you lived your short little life with no real thought of God. No real thought of your eternal destiny. And then, and then you came to the moment of your death. I mean, I think one of the, one of the most traumatizing things to read are the, the last words of unbelievers. Sir Walter Scott, the skeptic. On his deathbed, it says, Until this moment, I thought there was neither a God nor a hell. Now I know that there are both, and I am doomed to perdition by the just judgment of the Almighty. And so he goes. Voltaire, one of history's best-known atheists, often stated in his life that by the time I'm buried, the Bible will be non-existent. But his last words were, I am abandoned by God and man. I shall die and go to hell alone. It is said that his despair was so terrible that uh, his associates were afraid to approach his bedside. And uh, after he passed away, his nurse said that for all the wealth in Europe, she would never watch another infidel die. Just the horror of watching this man move inexorably towards hell. Well, how incredibly different it is than for those who have come to know the Lord. It's, it's night and day difference. While death is going to be the lot of every one of us, the experience of death is going to be fundamentally different for those who know the Lord. So the psalmist, when he's talking about the, the, the path of the foolish and the death of the fools, he uses they and them language, right? Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd. Their form shall be consumed. But in verse 15, we have this radical difference a, in direct contrast to the fate of the foolish is the ransom of the reward, the, uh, the reward of the ransom. There's this there's completely different reality, different experience. Verse 15, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. This is one of the great but God statements in Scripture, right? We have, we have these uh, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy, Ephesians chapter 2, chapter two, made you alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. But God will ransom my soul. God is the great antithesis to the universal reign of death. The reality of death has been invaded by the reality of God. God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. Now the psalmist, remember, had, had, had said boldly, verse 7, no man can ransom a life. It's just too costly. 
112 billion doesn't touch it. But you see, what is impossible with men is, is possible with God. God and God alone can ransom, and he will ransom. Notice the psalmist's assurance isn't that it's possible, it's certain. God will ransom my soul. Do you have that confidence as you speed toward death? He says, God will receive me. It's a word of acceptance and welcome and peace with God. And this is the confidence, you see, of, the, of those who are, who are in God, who, who know God. There's this this. this this confidence that death is not going to be an experience of shill and loss and darkness, but it's going to be instead an experience of, of gain, entrance into the brilliance of the glory of God. Psalm 17, verse 15, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. That we close our eyes in death and we open them in life, in the presence of God. Psalm 73, 24, you guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. Glory, honor, wealth. You see, the experience of the child of God is, is diametrically different than the experience of the lost. Instead of death being their shepherd, what is the Christian's confession? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Instead of eternal loss, of all possessions, we gain vastly superior and lasting possessions. It makes 112 billion just look like dirt on the ground. It's, it's just nothing. Instead of the loss of glory, we're crowned with glory. Instead of eternal despair, there's eternal joy. Instead of, instead of separation from God forever and ever, we are welcomed into eternal sweet communion with God forever and ever. And so you see, the, the testimony then of the saints uh, is, is profoundly different. Michelangelo on his deathbed, the great painter and sculptor, I die in the faith of Jesus Christ and in the firm hope of a better life. Charles Spurgeon, Spurgeon, I can hear them coming. He's dying and his, and his children are gathered around. And he sits up straight in bed and says to his kids, don't you hear them? This is my coronation day. I can see the chariots. I'm ready to board. Always the preacher. I can see the chariots. I'm ready to board. And his, his kids said, dad, I, you're dreaming. I am not dreaming. And they came and he boarded. Dwight L. Moody on his deathbed, said, can this be death? Why, it is better than living. Earth is receding. Heaven is opening. This is my coronation day. Why do they say that? Because that's exactly what it is. It's exactly what the Bible promises. A crown, honor, glory. Friends, every single one of you will die, and I will too. Everyone will die. Some will experience death as unmitigated horror and despair and loss. 
Others will experience it as unimaginable glory and gain. What makes the difference? And the answer, of course, is Jesus makes the difference. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus makes the difference. If any man come unto me, he has passed over from death to life. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, that Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, Adam, by man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. And all meaning from every tongue, tribe, and nation. This is why we read in Revelation 5 verse 9, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Christ has ransomed, bought back sinners so that we can have life. We're going to die. And yet Jesus says, whoever lives and believes in me will never die. That he's conquered death. Friend, what's the experience of death going to be like for you? And I'm not asking how are you going to die. You don't know that. Could be by disease. Could be by accident. Could just be your body wearing out. Maybe a heart attack. Who knows? God knows. But how will you die? How will you die? Because you can know that. You can know that today. The core message of the gospel is that God has sent his son Jesus Christ into the world so that you can die in hope. You can die in peace. You can die in joy. That God has sent a redeemer, his name is Jesus, to buy back with his own body and his blood the lives of of those who are destined to die, to buy your life back. The ransom has been paid, and Scripture invites you then to come and receive that ransom for yourself, to confess your sin, to repent, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. The great crisis of your life will be averted and avoided, and the great blessing of God will be yours. It's unbelievable. If, there's, if you had to list the great tragedies in the world, I can't think of a greater tragedy than to be someone who heard the truth, was close to the truth, even acknowledged the truth, and never entered into the truth. Don't let that be you. If you've never gotten on your knees before Jesus Christ and asked him to be this Savior for you, to ransom you from your sin, uh, to give you peace and reconciliation with God, if you've not surrendered your life to this Jesus, I beg you to do it today because you're going to die. For those of you who've lost loved ones, this is a great reminder that our loved ones who died in the Lord are not in Sheol, they are in heaven. They're with Jesus. And we will soon go to be with them. That everyone who belongs to Jesus Christ in faith can have this certain knowledge, just like the psalmist, that God will ransom your soul from the grave. God will receive you. I hope you have that confidence before the Lord tonight. You can, by faith, in his word. Amen. Oh God in heaven, you know our, our lives and hearts. You know our, our mortality. You know the day of our death. And none of us will avoid it unless you come again. 
And so, Lord, we, we just cry out to you as mortals who must die. I thank you so much for Jesus Christ who rescued us from death and the fear of death and in giving us eternal life has rescued us from the fear of anything we might suffer in this world, including oppressive, wicked, cheating men. That having eternity, whatever loss we experience in this life is not worth comparing to the glory that will be received then. Lord, I, I, I pray that the reality of eternity would more and more be on our mind and it would change the way we think about our jobs and our hobbies, our relationships. We'd be filled with a lot more peace, with a lot more calmness and patience and joy and hope, even in the midst of sin, even in the midst of loss. Because, because we've been united to Jesus Christ and his victory is our victory and heaven is our home. Oh, God in heaven, please let these truths penetrate our hearts and minds. And, and Lord, again tonight, if there be any here who've, who've never crossed over from death to life because they've never come to closure with Jesus Christ as King and Lord and Savior, I pray, Lord, that you would just show them their, their dire need and, and bring them to kneel. Lord, if there's any here who, who believe and yet do not have assurance, I pray that your scripture would be a foundation for assurance. And the reality of what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross will be a foundation for assurance because Jesus died bearing my sin. Because Jesus Christ died to give me his righteousness. Because Jesus Christ promises that I've crossed from death to life. I can go to sleep in peace knowing that I will awake in glory. So Lord, bless us, your people, with these truths. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to respond to the word this evening, singing together, I will sing of my Redeemer, the one who ransomed us. Let's give him praise and glory.